How many of you have a skincare regimen? If you don't, I want to encourage you to invest in one. And there's so many products out there. It can be really hard to know which product is right for you. I want to encourage you to go to theskinspot.com. We are partnering with the skin spot and I'm offering you 20% off of everything at the skin spot using the code BE20. That's BE20 and save 20%. You can get skin medical products, skin suitcles, revision skincare, L to MD, Clarisonic. If you don't know what you should have, well, just ask for a free virtual skincare consultation. How cool is that? And Dr. Nazarian and her team will cue you up and they will tell you exactly what you need. So go over to theskinspot.com, use the code BE20 to save 20% on all your purchases and really invest in yourself. Hey there, I'm Sasha. I'm a doctor, I'm a mom, and I'm a founder. I believe that women are overwhelmed and exhausted. So I founded a company called Brave Enough. Brave Enough helps thousands of women find clarity, set boundaries, and gain control of their lives. So welcome, sit back, and let's get into the good stuff. In season two, episode 47, Sasha interviews Dr. Renee DeVerzal. They talk about embracing new and sometimes scary opportunities. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shulkut. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. I'm so excited you're joining me, and I am really excited about today's talk. I think it's going to inspire and encourage several of you. This is an awesome guest, and she and I have a very authentic and real and truthful conversation about taking on different new challenges and different ideas. I really want to encourage you if there's something in your life that you have wanted to do for a long time, but you're not sure how to even get started, or you're not even sure if it's right for you, or maybe you're stuck. You know, I think a lot of us just feel stuck at different times of our life, and that's a good thing. It's really actually good. I always say this because it helps you understand that something, there's more. And I think that, that if we didn't have those times in our life where we feel stuck or where we feel discontent or where we don't feel at peace or where we don't feel we're really optimizing our talents, it probably means we're not. And it's a good motivator and kick in the pants to kind of become unstuck. So I, I always say, you know, when you're really burned out, it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing because it's going to make you change when we're just stressed or we're doing a million things, but we're not truly at our lowest point or we don't feel, we feel okay, but we don't feel stuck and in a bad place. We're not going to get out of that place. I put together the Brave Enough Masterclass for women to become unstuck. And when you're in that low place or you're feeling beat up or you're feeling burned out or you're in a toxic environment, how do you get out of it? That's the point of the Brave Enough Masterclass. I'm starting the next class at the, in the end of September and I would love for you to join me. It's all online. You can do it at your own pace. You need about an hour of a week to commit to yourself. If you do not have an hour a week to commit to yourself, something's wrong. Your, your time management skills are not great. And guess what? You're going to learn how to have, you're le- going to learn how to create time for yourself during the week. I'm going to teach you that in this class. We go through it with a small group of women and I'm telling you it's the best investment you're going to make in 2020 is the masterclass. You're going to change your priorities. You're going to live your priorities. So go to becomebraveenough.com today and sign up. Sign up for the Brave Enough Masterclass. I promise you, you will not regret it. Okay, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. I am so excited to have what I know is going to be an amazing conversation with a new friend. And she is a total badass and she is just a powerhouse. And I think 
oftentimes we see ourselves in a certain way and put limitations on ourselves as women. And I hope that anyone listening today is going to listen to our conversation and kind of break those limitations and those limiting beliefs or the thought of imposter syndrome that we have on our, on ourselves. So my guest today is Dr. Renee Deverdzal. She is an associate professor of medicine and academic hospitalist at Oregon Health Science University. She is an expert, an international expert in ultrasound, and she has created one of the, the country's first general medicine ultrasound fellowships. And it's pretty incredible because she found a niche, she found her passion, and then she really grew her career around this, which is in, just so inspiring. And it's a path that is not traditional in her area of medicine and in her specialty. So that's why I think it's even more courageous and more brave and more important that we hear from her today. So welcome to the show. I'm so honored to have you on, Renee. Thank you so much. I'm truly honored to be on as well. So tell us a little bit about, give us the three minute bio about yourself and how you, you know, started um, in traditional medicine and kind of pivoted and how you got to be where you are now, which you are also the new chief medical officer for Vave Health, which is an ultrasound startup company. I mean, so cool. So talk to us a little bit about how you got there. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to. It is not anything I imagined uh, earlier on in my life. So it's it's very exciting to say that I, I started in residency, internal medicine. I'm from Oregon. I went to medical school at OHSU, and then I was back in residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, and they have a really fantastic emergency medicine team there, very well known for point-of-care ultrasound. And as an internal medicine resident, you're doing rotations in the emergency department uh, where you're working shifts with these faculty. And so I had seen them doing this work and patient comes in short of breath and within five minutes, they've looked at the heart, the lungs, the abdomen. And I just thought, why can't I do that? And why aren't we all doing that? Why is this only something that's in the emergency department? So from there, I went back to Oregon Health and Science University to start my academic role as a hospitalist and where I care for patients myself and also as a teaching hospitalist with the residents. And there was one particular moment overnight where a patient was transferred to me from an outside hospital, rural coastal hospital with what they called pneumonia. He hadn't seen a doctor in 5, 10, 20 years. He'd already gotten six liters of fluid, antibiotics, but he still was not looking good. And I had no idea what was going on. So I threw the ultrasound probe on, very quickly realized that this was not a pneumonia. He had signs of elevated right-sided pressures. I ran down to the emergency room because I still wasn't 100% comfortable with my skill set. They looked at the images with me and the patient came to me at 2 a.m. And by 6 a.m., we had diagnosed him with not a pneumonia, but a lung cancer and pulmonary emboli. And that was the, the one of my friends calls it the first kiss moment when you realize that this is life changing, medicine changing work and you'll never go back. And so that was the true passion moment. And from there, it just I was I was obsessed with it. And so I started teaching the students and creating electives and and everything kind of blossomed from there. I love it. I love it. And I, I want to go back to something that you said very early, because, um, I think it's so important. If you just listen to your story, you're like, Oh, she asked a question and then she just started this thing, but there's so much more to that and identify with you, um, with your story. And that's why I want to point it out. You said 
you were watching people in a traditional practice of internal medicine utilizing ultrasound or modality, and you wondered, why can't we do this in internal medicine? Why aren't we doing this in hospital medicine? Why aren't, why aren't we doing the same thing? And while that sounds like a very innocuous, you know, question, the truth is that that was a huge moment that you broke through limiting beliefs that other people put around a modality in medicine mm-hmm. and, and thought bigger picture, why can't we do use more this for more patients and expand this practice? And, and you, it didn't let like the thoughts of, well, there's a reason there's, there has to be a reason why we don't use it in internal medicine, yeah. right? Like all those obstructions that we see, most of us go, we have those questions inside, but we're too afraid to ask them because so quickly they're shot down by all these negative thoughts or negative, you know, comments or beliefs. And some of those might be true, right? There might be an element in truth in some, to some of those, but you like, didn't let that stop you. And I love that because what you created for yourself was an incredible career. Tr- career trajectory that took you on a path and you're on a path that very few women are on. And it was because you were like brave enough to kind of bust through those beliefs. So I want to know what were the obstructions? Like, how did you overcome those obstructions and what were they? Can you share what those were to us? That's a fantastic question. And I, I love how you framed that because it actually, you framed it in a way that was unique to me even. So I, I appreciate that. I think the biggest thing is that us internists are so cognitive. We're the ones that sit and round for four hours. <laughs> we love talking about things. We love uh, researching things, publishing things. So we didn't have the hard data. There are no randomized controlled trials that say if you use point of care ultrasound and you detect pericardial tamponade, that more of those patients will live because you find it when they're coding. There's no trials for that. We don't have that data, but it makes common sense that if a patient's coding and you had a probe, just throw it on and look for some of the T's. So that's kind of, um, it was breaking through tradition Mm -hmm. and breaking through people saying, you're going to come between me and my patient. Mm -hmm. You're going to put technology between me and my patient. Mm -hmm. And I joke around. I'm like, this isn't epic. This isn't the medical record. I'm not putting something for you to do in between you and the patient. And most of us actually have found it brings great joy to show our patients what's going on in their body and to teach them and to teach our learners. When I have the ultrasound probe over the internal jugular vein. And I have my med student Valsalva and they see it blow up and I get to talk about intrathoracic pressures. I mean, the light bulbs go off and it's just, it's so amazing. And it's so fun to get to teach that really incredible thing. But okay. So let me step back to the the obstacles because see, I get so excited. I start waxing poetic (laughs) about it. Um, So it was some of the more traditional, I kind of call, you know, some of the haters. And then there, I just didn't have a great peer group. So I became friends with a lot of ER doctors. I would go to the meetings and and say, hey, look, look at me, look at me. I'm here too. I'm an internist. I'm cool. I'm it. (laughs) Um, That was always me following them around. And just getting buy-in from the top, it was easier to start. And we said, we're just teaching students anatomy and physiology. And then as the students started coming through, it started to push the attendings more and more. And over time, I joke around that in the beginning, it was my dog and pony show. Look what you can do. Look what I can show you on your patient. And my courses have gone from, it's no longer, look what you can do. People are coming up to me and saying, how do I change my practice? Mm -hmm. And that to me, if, if I, 
ever had any dream of having a, a thumbprint on the, the field of medicine, it wouldn't be that people can do some fun, cool tech thing. It would be to change their practice. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the ultimate goal. That's awesome. You know, it's very, it's very similar to how I started in my career. Um, in, in, in echo perioperative echo with TEE, mm-hmm. I, you know, was mm-hmm. utilizing it in the heart room, um, in my residency and fellowship. I did a fellowship in perioperative echo at the university of Utah. And very quickly when I came back to, you know, when I would go there, learn, come back and I would, it, it was like, okay, so-and-so is coding an OR whatever, and they were, we're not sure what's going on. And I started utilizing echo in rescue situations. And there was only one study that had been done, um, years before, um, that at the Brigham, um, that had shown that when you use it, you have about a 25%, um, survival rate. Well, I was like, we were getting great results with this. And, and yet we were getting such pushback because people were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are we using TEE and resuscitation? This was years ago. This was like 20, uh, 20, 2008. And, um, we published the, my colleagues and I at the university of Nebraska published, you know, a a landmark study on rescue echocardiography. And we showed that 80% of the people, uh, walk out of the hospital. And also when you utilize it and we're wrong, we as physicians are wrong on the initial diagnosis with pre echo more than we are right. Okay. So that was a huge study, but it was controversial and Mm -hmm. I got a lot of a pushback, but you know what? it was so cool because in 2019 comes around and some ER docs are like, Hey, we want to publish a study on use utilizing TEE in CPR. And and we know that you published some of the first studies on this, but we're struggling to get support. Will you support us? I'm like, uh, heck yeah, I'll support you. You know? So it's fun because when you are brave enough to do something and it, and you know, you and I share uh, the love of ultrasound, but it could be anything. It could be when you're brave enough to think about how to have a different way for your patients to get access to the clinic, or it can Mm -hmm. be uh, a different way to teach your school, your kids school virtually. It can be a different way that we measure, uh, academic productivity. It can be anything outside of medicine. You know, when we're brave enough to do that, you kind of have to expect the pushback. I've learned this, like even something that you don't think is controversial, like, I don't know, starting a business in women's empowerment, heaven forbid that that's controversial, but it is (laughs) (laughs) whatever you want to start or whatever you want to do to improve other people's life or improve your own life. It's almost like anymore. I go, okay, I have this idea. I'm going to like speak truth to this idea. And now I'm going to put on the armor because I know I'm going to like the arrows are going to start coming. hundred <laughs> percent. I know exactly, exactly what you mean for me. <clears throat> the, when I decided to, so this offer came through for this chief medical officer role in this ultrasound startup company. And I, you know, I went through the imposter syndrome, of course, are they sure? Or did I, I mean, they want me really? Okay. And then I realized, yeah, I have a lot to offer. And, and this is really core to my mission 
this is, I've, I've talked about this, tweeted about this. I love the Ikigai method. It's this nice Japanese Venn diagram that helps you uh, figure out where, where opportunities lie. And so to me, it was really very, very, very close to the center. And some of the, the, the software and the tech that we're working on to help empower people to change their practice. If you don't have an expert at your home site, asynchronous review by an expert, being able to cast the images to several phones at once, you know, there's, I'm not going to go into the full details, but they, they hooked me. And I thought, you know what, this isn't just, this isn't just a company. This isn't, this isn't just a probe. This is culture and trying to change the face of medicine. And and I want in. And it was really scary because academics is all I've ever known. It's all I ever thought I wanted to do. And I just was really terrified, but it's, it's core to my mission and it's in line with my personal mission. And so after discussing with a lot of people, my husband, my mentors, I just decided, heck, I'm going to go with it. But I was afraid. I was really afraid of what these people would say. You're a sellout. You uh, are ditching academics. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite mentors, though, came back to me and said, you know, maybe this is the new academics. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know. And I still work at OHSU more than, you know, more than half of my time. But I did get a couple of those on Twitter. Someone said, congrats for selling out. And another time kind of critiqued one of the videos that I had done. Look, I'm not a videographer. Okay. We're a startup. I don't, you know, we have, we have marketing people that are great, but it's all hands on deck and we're all doing a little bit of everything. So, you know, I just was kind of like, okay, I'm going to take all this with a grain of salt. I'm doing what I love. I'm trying to make a difference in the world. I, I can't please everybody. No one will ever be happy no. with anything I do. And you know, it, it's so amazing because literally what you are going to learn in this new role is something that like less than 1% of the people that remain in academics will learn. And, and who's to say that what, what you're learning, you're not going to take back to your academic role and influence people. Like that's what it's so interesting. And I completely understand because I'm sure you got pushback. I'm sure you're getting criticism. I'm sure you're getting the comments. Um, you know, when I started brave enough, that's exactly what happened to me. Like I, I thought I'm doing this really cool thing. I'm going to, I'm going to be brave enough, which is why I called it brave enough <laughs> to, to step out and do something. And, um, the response that I got was so the criticism was at times, like, I just kept asking myself, is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? Because it feels so uns unsettling and it feels so unsafe and so vulnerable. And I've gone from being someone who has built my reputation in academia to someone who's being, you know, called many different things. Um, and yeah. uh, that I was just selling out that I just wanted a plat social media platform. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. like this is the most like scary thing I've ever done. And I would yeah. much rather just run back to the operating room and stay and hide in the, in the operating room where I know what I'm doing and it's comfortable and it's safe. And, yeah. and I don't know how to be an entrepreneur. I don't know how to lead thousands of people. I, I, I had to figure that out. I'm still figuring it out. So I, but I'm learning so many things that help me in my yeah. academic practice. Like I'm learning, I'm, I think I'm a better teacher now. I'm a, I'm much more compassionate now and empathetic because I'm trying something new and failing all the time. So of course I'm, that's going to trickle down to my fellows and my residents I train. I'm much more compassionate than I was before I did this. So 
you're going to be learning so many amazing things in your new role. And I think sometimes when we are, when we have these opportunities, we really have to look at, okay, what is, what, not just like, what are the opportunity, what is this opportunity going to give me, but what am I going to learn? How am I going to improve Mm -hmm. even as like a, a, a friend, a work colleague, a mother, a wife, a partner, a spouse, a friend, you know, what, how is this going to influence me as a person? And I love that you said it was in line with your personal mission. So talk to us a little bit about how did you fight off that imposter syndrome? How did you like, what was, were the steps you took to say I'm doing it? So it's hard. Cause it was basically a month of not being able to sleep, <laughs> you know, just awake all night, my mind's going, I'm just my, yeah, just really a month of of very frantic discussions and thoughts and nonstop. But I think, again, I mentioned this Ikigai, this um, Venn diagram. And so there's these four quadrants. You can just Google it. There's these pretty colored pictures. One of them is um, what am I good at? What can I get paid for? What does the world need? And of course, I'm just going to blink on the fourth, but basically you're trying to figure out again, if you're doing something that you're good at, but the world doesn't need it and you're getting paid for it, you, you're not going to have a sense of fulfillment, but at the same time, it could be the most fulfilling work ever, but I have a whole ton of student loans. I still have to pay off. So I've got to get paid something. You know, I, I said, it, this can't be a pay cut from my work as a hospitalist. That's, that is important to me. Um, and then I went to a really fantastic double AMC women in medicine seminar. Mm-hmm. And we went through a whole bunch of, of things like creating your personal mission, negotiation, all kinds of things. And that negotiation talk made me realize that there's so much more than just finances. And so it was, okay, what am I going to learn from this? What growth and experiences will I take into the rest of my life, as you mentioned? And so really just trying to weigh weigh all of those things. And then when I was able to say, I think that this will benefit me as a person and I can benefit them, that made me feel, okay, I can get rid of the imposter syndrome because I've broken it down enough and realized it's in line enough with what I know, but it's also a stretch enough to really put me out there and to really make me grow. So it was kind of that in between of, of I can do it. I can, I'm good at enough of these things. And also I'm going to gain a ton by learning and growing and doing it. I love that. And, and, and what you just did when you, when you accepted this role is you did what I talk about in between grit and grace. Um, you expanded the margin. So you widened the margin of what a academic physician looks like for everyone. You widen the margin of what a woman leader looks like for all the women watching. You widen the margin of what, um, you know, self-respect and what self-development looks like and a growth mindset looks like. You just widen the margin for all of us and open the door for all of us. And so I think that's so important and it's why I try so very hard, um, to support women and amplify women who take on these new scary opportunities, because the last thing a woman taking on an opportunity like this needs is criticism. (laughs) Like most of us are more, are so self-critical. We don't need critics. Like I always laugh about that. I'm like, if you, if you are going to wait for Sasha Shilkut to make a mistake online, you're not going to wait long. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> like you can jump on board the critics really easy because I'm imperfect. I have yeah, such yeah. a strong I mean, inner internal critic that like when I ever get brave enough to actually do something, the last thing I need is somebody criticizing it. You know, I've already yeah, probably criticized it myself. Your internal, your internal frenemy. Cause I was mentioning I'm about halfway through your book, which I love. And um, yeah, I have that on total lockdown. So I don't need external criticism at all. <laughs> that, that one we're good. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And it's funny because, um, we, you know, I have four kids and one of my, all of my kids, I really have to give them different types of feedback and different ways. Mm. They all require, because of their personalities, some have really loud internal critics. And I know when that child is walking off a soccer field or basketball court or dance competition, I don't need to say anything because they're already their internal critic is like mm-hmm. totally ramped up. And then I have other children that they're like, you know, they miss, they, they make one out of seven shots and I'm like, and they're like, I was amazing. And I was like, <laughs> um, maybe you should work a little harder, you know? So like, it's just, it's a good example for me to remind myself that like, I think most high achievers have such strong internal critics. We don't really need to criticize one another. Um, yeah. we probably need more encouragement to get back on the horse and keep trying. So mm-hmm. I love asking yeah, sure. this question to um, people that come on the show and I'm excited to hear what you think. How, I'm sure there's been a failure in your life and you don't have to describe it right now, but if you think back to a failure that was significant or not even maybe a failure, but just, um, I call it data collection, like that didn't work. Um, mm-hmm. How did? How do you as a a hospitalist, as a leader in your department, as a fellowship director, as now a CMO, how do you like sit with that failure and then go, okay, I'm not going to let it stop me from the next success? So I think that's an excellent question. I'll just reflect. Instead of failures, I'm just going to go with rejection. So (laughs) I, I look back and it's been a long, hard road. My, none of my family were doctors. I was the first person family to have a bachelor's degree. I had no one to look up to, to help give advice or anything as a result. And I mean, my first MCAT score wasn't great. My grades were fair. Uh, It took me three tries to get into medical school and those, you know, rejection just keep working. I'm got to make myself better. Got to make myself a better candidate, even though I knew I was the perfect candidate. Uh, I have to, I have to keep, keep pounding the pavement, keep doing my research, keep doing my community outreach, all of these different things. And then, you know, so finally I make it into medical school and I'm fired up and I'm dedicated and devoted and I'm, I'm ready to rock. And so I'm sure you've been called this before or I, I believe as a high achieving woman, you probably have, you know, some of my classmates that thought it was cooler to not act that interested would call me a gunner. Like, look, I'm not trying, I'm not doing this for grades. I'm doing this because I'm passionate and I work damn hard to be here. So you can leave class early or whatever, but I'm going to be here and I'm going to be taking notes and I'm going to be paying attention. <laughs> yep. So, so I'm, I'm finally in school, you know, and then fast forward to, to residency stuff. And I'm, I'm applying for everything. And I was just obsessed with going to Massachusetts General Hospital. 
I did an away rotation at the Brigham. I got to meet um, the the residency program director at Mass General at the time, Hassan Bazari, just the most wonderful person. I met faculty, a former chief resident. I went to the New England Journal CPC, the Clinical Pathologic Case Conference, and I was obsessed. And so I'm getting some rejections and some acceptances, and I get a letter of rejection from them and I am bawling on the floor of my bedroom, like bawling my eyes out on the phone to my father, like I'm never going to be good enough for, for them. And he's like, well, kid, you're going to cry about it. You're going to do something about it. And so I emailed the program director and I emailed the faculty I had met and said, I love your program. These are the reasons that I love your program. And these are the reasons that I think I could really be good for your program. And you know, if I didn't have any objective, you know, don't pass go because of this score or whatever, I would truly appreciate a relook. So they reviewed. There were no contraindications to offer me an interview and I was able to go. So then That's I show amazing. up and I'm I'm at the mothership, my dream place. And I'm even more of an imposter syndrome because I already got rejected. And here I am. And what the heck are the odds that I'm actually going to match here? And so fast forward to match day, my dad opened, I was too nervous to look. So my dad opens the envelope and starts crying and like calls his wife and says, she's going to Harvard. In that moment, I was, I mean, I still get reclaimed. He's passed. My mom had already passed. He's since passed. And that, um, that moment to me of, of all those rejections, all of that, everything just pounding the pit, you know, you just make it work. And so I think that that is really translated. Um, the grit piece, when I, again, when I'm reading your book, it, it really resonates with me. Um, you just keep going. Oh, I love this. I love it. I love it. I'm getting like, I, I have literal goosebumps hearing this story. And um, I mean, you're going to, people are going to listen to this who have been rejected and over and over, and they're going to say, okay, today I'm picking it back up. And so thank you for being brave enough to share that story because it's just, yeah. it's incredible. It's incredible. That's like the, you know, beneath the iceberg that people don't see. People look mm -hmm. at you on Twitter and they're like, oh my gosh, she's incredible. She's a chief medical officer of a new startup company. She's in tech. She's an academician. She started this fellowship program and they don't know what it took to get there the pounding, the pavement, and we they, don't, you know, we don't, we don't share, share that, that stuff. No. Yeah, exactly. Jinx, jinx. We don't, people don't want to share that. And that's not, I, I really love the curbsiders, their podcast, because they asked me the same question. They supported me when I said my biggest failure was not realizing when I was burned out and depressed and anxious in residency and, and letting myself get to the place that I thought no one else there's nothing left for anyone else. And so um, nobody wants to put out their imperfections. Nobody wants to advertise it. And it, we're never going to destigmatize mental health if we don't open up and talk about these things. And so I basically just try to be an open book. Look, I'm really good at some stuff and I suck at a whole lot more. I know. So let's all just grow. <laughs> I know. I've had some interesting comments when I've shared failures um, on social from people who I know who will call me and be like, you know, I just don't know. I think you're limiting yourself. You're like never going to be a dean or you're, I don't oh know gosh, that you're going to get a chair job if you just shared that. And I'm like, uh, I don't you know what? This is, this is how it is. I don't want the jobs sure. that don't want all of me. 
the real authentic yes. transparent Sasha Shilkut. Like, I don't yes. want that. <laughs> I'm not going to go into a job interview, uh, you know, and just present the shiny pretty and like hope they accept me because what's going to happen when they do accept me. And then they realize that like, Oh, she has four kids. Oh, she has to do, she has these boundaries. She has these priorities. Oh, she's mm-hmm. really passionate about gender equity. Like I let it all out there because that's who I am. I don't, why would I want to yeah. take a job or a, a promotion that wouldn't want those parts of me. And it's so inspiring when women and leaders and physicians like you share that because there are people listening that are, have, have been rejected or are being rejected. And, you know, when you think you're the only one and you don't normalize failure and what that is, is basically Mm -hmm. normalizing life experiences and failure that leads to burnout and quitting and people falling out of the pipeline. But when we share that and when we're transparent, that leads to resiliency, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so I just, I love that you just talk about this. I want to touch a little bit on working in a male dominated field. When I, when I got your buy, when I got the announcement, I saw that you had taken the CMO. Of course I went to, um, your startup company page. And I looked and I was like, oh my goodness, she's with mostly men. Not surprising. There are a couple other women on the board, but most of the people that are leading um, in tech are men. Vast majority of percentage um, of people leading startup companies are men, venture capitalists. I think, what is it like three to 6% go to women. Um, So it's a very male dominated field. You and I are both physicians. There's a lot of people that listen to my show who are not in medicine, but you and I both work in male dominated fields. So we're used to that, but I want to talk a little bit about how do you deal with gender bias in the workplace? I don't even ask, do you deal with it? Because if you're a woman in 2020 and you don't, I I don't know, you must be living under a rock or something. I don't know. (laughs) So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I love, love, love my team. My team is just simply fantastic. So um, they are all, you know, men and men and women. My medical director, she's a female physician from Germany, but the CEO had a v, um, head of sales, VP. All of these positions are all male, and a lot of the software and tech people are as well. So, part of it is I like how you said in the book. I try to bring the whole me not just the part of me that looks and acts like them. And so something I'm super proud of, I on my first board meeting, I felt like a baby med student. I was writing down every word I, I couldn't understand and every abbreviation for techie stuff that I didn't know um, <laughs> to go Google later. And uh, so then after that, we had our all hands meeting. And in this all hands meeting, they had me introduce myself. And so instead of just saying, I'm Renee, I'm this awesome doctor, I'm whatever. I said, you know, I'm pretty new to this industry. I know a lot of ultrasound, but not a lot of tech. And I was really confused at the board meeting yesterday. I was looking up a ton of stuff I didn't know. And so I would love it if people could give some brief explanations for everything as we're going through today. And, um, People afterwards, like the office person, you know, the office administrator, everyone was like, wow, I learned so much more. And so just trying to do something small like that, like leading with humility, Mm. trying to make people really understand um, I'm coming from a different perspective. 
things like that are really, um, I think what I'm trying to, to bring, if that makes sense. Yes. And it's, again, you're just expanding the margin because so many times we as women get cues. Um, we get uh, cues from our environment, our culture, um, our mentors, our sponsors. And a lot of us have male mentors and sponsors predominantly. Um, and when we get those cues, it's really easy for us to kind of go, okay, I gotta, I gotta be like John or I gotta lead like Jim because John and Jim are really good leaders. Like they're awesome leaders. But the truth of the matter is that as women, we're going to lead a little differently, right? So we can take some of those concepts and attributes and we can definitely lead in similar ways. But even if we say the same things in the same way as a woman in the workplace, it's not going to be it's not going to be perceived the same. And so I think when we lead what as what, however feels authentic to us as women and exactly. work, whether that's more collaborative or, and more grace giving or more team building, or whether that's more assertive and direct, however, it feels most comfortable and authentic to us. We expand the margin and the look and the attributes of what it is to be a leader who happens to be a woman in the workplace. Um, and I'm, I say that with uh, fervor and passion because I see so many amazing women who have the expertise, they have the attributes, they have fought and fought and fought to break the glass ceiling. They finally get an opportunity, but the opportunity is so the margin of who they would have to be and how they would have to be to be in that position is so narrow that they're like, I would be too exhausted. I can't do that. Not because of the work, but because of yeah. how they would have to change their persona. Does that make sense? And I get it. 100%. Like I've interviewed for jobs that are, you know, promotions and positions at different institutions. And I'm sitting there going, I can do this job. I could do this job tomorrow. Like the job itself does not scare me, but how I would have to be <laughs> to, to present myself in this job it would kill me. Like I couldn't. And to succeed. It yeah. To, yeah. And it's just, I couldn't be authentically Sasha. So I think that that happens to a lot of women. And then we get this kind of label as like, well, women don't want that. Those big jobs. Women don't No, mm -hmm. they do. They just want to be able to do them as themselves and as a woman, which is very different because 93% of our top, you know, m chair Dean and above in medicine, in academia is held by men. So I love that you are like, okay, I'm, I'm leading as me. I'm doing these things. I'm coming from this place because you're showing other people it can be done authentically as Renee. And that's what we need, right? Like that's, that's what we need to move the needle. I, I agree. I think it's harder to put on a face and be someone else and do what someone else would do. It's it's much easier just to be true to myself and what I believe and what I like in leaders and what I respect in other people. And so I just try to channel me and those I look up to and and just be honest. And I told my CEO on this, probably the second call, I grilled him a lot. Uh, sorry, did I say CMO? CEO. Uh, I was like, look, I'm a no BS person. And I didn't say BS. I, I said bullshit. So um like, I'm going to need you to tell me, you know, do you need, do you want a spokesperson or do you want a partner? Do you want, you know, me to have to do these 
these talks where I'm pretending to talk about ultrasound, but I'm selling the product, et cetera. And he says, no, no way. I want, I want you, I want your brain. I want all of that stuff. And so that goes back to what you're saying before about sometimes taking a position that would ruin you. It would, it would break you to do it. That was how I made sure first they know me, they know everything about me. I'm not pulling any punches. And so now I have to really lean into it and, and just be myself. And sometimes that's hard, but actually, well, is it hard? What's harder being, I think, I think it can be hard when you're still getting used to something when you're getting settled in, Mm -hmm. it can be hard to really put yourself all the way out there, but it's, it's worth it. And, And that's where I think I've settled now. Well, it's interesting because one of the, the questions I get all the time from women, I, I literally just got this question yesterday, um, uh, was talking to someone, coaching someone and, and it was, you know, how do I be me, but also like make sure that I'm not like breaking any, you know, social norms or I'm, I'm like fitting in with the, the culture. And I'm like, look, if you are a woman and you are a leader and you have been hired as a leader, you have to be direct and assertive. Like that's why you're hired. So you can try to like just navigate and walk the tightrope, but you're going to, not everyone's going to jive with your leadership or you can be authentically you. And guess what? Not everyone's going to jive with your leadership and like, but you're going to have inner peace. So you can either get backlash and, and be stressed out all the time trying to like walk on eggshells or you can be you and also get backlash, but have inner peace. Like you're going to have backlash either way. Like if I tomorrow suddenly became this like quiet introverted person, I mean, I'm not, but if I decided I was going to be that person who like never spoke up at a meeting or maybe, um, just decided to just kind of like fall back. Right. And hold back. People would, people would be like, why is she doing that? Like, why, why, oh, you know, she's not somebody who really, you know, speaks up a lot. But if you, if I speak up a lot, then I get the criticism of speaking up a lot. Like women are criticized no matter how, what we are. And so I think it's, it's, what do you want to choose? Do you want to choose like authenticity and inner peace and backlash? Or do you want to choose walking on eggshells and backlash? Cause you're going to get backlash either way. For sure. Yeah. I, I pick being comfortable and happy with myself when I fall asleep <laughs> rather than the eggshells. Yes. It's taking some time though. <laughs> it does. And it's an imperfect art, right? Like leadership and leading is an, is an art and it's a process. It's not like we are the best leader today we could ever be. We, we all are sharpening our skills all the time. If we are, have humility and vulnerability and we're able to share, we're going to grow. Um, I, I would hope that gosh, in 10 years, I'm a better person than I am in 2020, you know? So I think it's, I think we have to really just give ourselves grace and, um, and, and embrace that grit. Like I talked about, and I love that you are kind of showing us how to do that, um, from a very unique career trajectory and path. And I know we, I've taken up uh, so much of your time already, so we're going to close the show, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing, uh, your story and sharing your success and, and inspiring us. Thank you so much for having me. I adore everything you do. And so many of my friends, I just got this email last week from a good hospitalist friend who said, you guys have to check out this, um, 
you have to check out this brave enough podcast and this this <laughs> this doctor's Aww. just showcase. You have to check her out. And I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna be. I can't even believe it. I'm I'm gonna be talking to her next week. <laughs> so anyway, uh, your work is amazing, and it's been a true honor to to speak with you. Thank you. And for those of you listening. I hope that we encouraged you to embrace your own authentic self and to take on new and challenging, scary, exciting challenges and and opportunities that come your way. And if you need any advice, you know, we'll link some resources in the show notes about imposter syndrome. And I just want to thank Renee again for coming on and encourage everyone to live brave. This episode of The Brave Enough Show was sponsored by theskinspot.com. Visit theskinspot.com, enter code BE20, and receive 20% off your purchase. This has been an HSG production.